0: Those are some mighty words you just sang. You realize it? With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. Seriously? That's a, that's a great, great song. That's a great prayer. That's a great desire. Is, is that what you find in your life? Because <laughs> I'll tell you what. More often than not, it's not what I find in my life. With every breath I long to follow Jesus. Well, it certainly is our heart. I, I trust, I hope that's your your prayer, your goal, your desire. But truth be told, that's not where you are. Truth be told, you're miles away from that objective. That's the ideal that Jesus paints for us, right? That's the, that's the example that he sets. That's what we see, we'll see this morning in Luke chapter 9. We'll see our Savior who set the vision of the kingdom and mission priorities before him, so that with every breath, he not only longed to follow, but he did. He carried it through, he submitted himself to moment by moment, word by word, breath by breath, to the will of the Father. That was a reality for Jesus. And so this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 9, that's the, that's the reality that, that, that Jesus wants to paint for us. That's the mission priority. That's the kingdom priority for everyone who is a true disciple of Christ. And that's what we're aiming for. And by God's grace, He's patient with us as we're, as we're working to be more like Jesus. As He's sanctifying us and, and forming Christ in us, He's patient in the process. And we, we, can, we can rejoice in that. This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 9 and it's kind of been our strategy in in the Gospel of Luke to kind of take it in, in in large chunks and then in small pieces and so this is another one of those large chunks so we can kind of see the overview of this chapter and we can just we can really begin to understand the message behind the chapter so often when we get caught up in the details and I, and I say caught up because as we look into the, the specifics of an account, we, it's so easy for us to miss how this fits in the, in the greater context. And so we're going to take several verses in Luke chapter 9. The goal of that is to help us see the, the anthem, the, the themes that, that are written across this chapter for us so that we can understand the significance of what we've been called to. We've been called to this song that we just sang, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. That's That's the heart of Luke chapter 9. That's the heart of Christ for us as his disciples. Let me pray for us and then we'll we'll dive into the word. God, thank you that we can come to you this morning as those who are so far away from what you have called us to. And even as Christ will acknowledge and and rebuke his disciples later on in this chapter by calling them oh faithless and twisted generation it wasn't just israel that was at fault it was specifically the disciples who should have known better and the truth is we're in the same we're in the, we're in good company we walk in the same steps as the disciples our testimony is so faulty our consistency is so flawed lord we don't walk after you the way we should and so as we look into the word of god this morning not only awaken our understanding because we know that, that that is a work of god the holy spirit illuminating illuminating hearts it, it happens only through your power and so we pray that you would cause your presence through your holy spirit to awaken our hearts through the word of god this morning and that we would not just see the truth, but that you would help us to walk in the truth today. May, as we carry ourselves out of this place, may we be carried in the, in the power of God and with the message of God. And may we be about the kingdom purposes of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that... Um, that we're working through Luke chapter nine, and and one thing that may be beneficial for you is is this book. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. We have two copies of this. We're going to put in the resource center. And, and essentially, what this is, it compiles kind of a a chronological order of the of the Gospels for us. So you can kind of see how does Matthew and Mark and Luke and John how do they fit together? How how do they how do they work together? What's what's uh, in one gospel, but kind of filled out in a different gospel. And so I, w- I would commend this to you. You can see Luke chapter 9 on, on the reverse of your outline this morning, and you can see that there's a, a, a section uh, in our chapter that is that is missing in Luke chapter 9 because he has a goal in mind, not because he missed information, but but he's pointing to a specific theme and a specific purpose, that Matthew and Mark will will pick up and carry along in in other ways. But this morning, as we look at the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, there are are really two themes that come to the surface. First, it's the kingdom. The message and purpose of the kingdom. And second, it's the cost of the kingdom. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom? And what is it going to take to be part of that kingdom? What's the kingdom cost? If, you're, uh, if you have a, don't have a Bible and would like to use the, the pew Bible in front of you, you can find uh, Luke chapter 9 on page 866. I would encourage you to follow along as we, we make our way. We're going to pick up our, our, our narrative this morning in, in verse uh, 7 to 9, but just reading the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 9 as a, as a context for where we are. It says this, and he called the 12 together. This is Jesus calling the disciples. He says, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Let's just pause there for a moment. The word kingdom in the gospel of Luke is, is a major emphasis. Over 40 times, Luke will point to the kingdom because this is the reality. Jesus came to make us aware of the kingdom. The kingdom was present in the king, Jesus. And so he sends his disciples out. He encourages them. He he commands them to go out and and to proclaim this kingdom, the kingdom of God. And, And it wasn't just any kingdom. It wasn't a physical kingdom. It was a kingdom primarily that was a kingdom of God, a spiritual one, a heavenly one. He will use, Luke will use the kingdom of God, this designation, 32 times in his gospel. And he gives them not only this delegated message, this, this message of the, the proclamation of the kingdom, but he, it's accompanied by kingdom power. Power and authority over demons and the ability to heal. So that in verse 6, we find they departed. They went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The kingdom was present. It was electric in that the disciples were commissioned now, not just Jesus in his ability to heal and to preach about the kingdom, but, but now the disciples, this, this company uh, or band of, of 12 apostles that were sent to do the same thing. That the kingdom was present in message and in power. And Herod, he's recognizing the, the movement that is taking place and recognizing that there is something quite distinct, something that's evident about this person named Jesus. And as we come to learn about the kingdom, as as you make a decision this morning about whether or not you're going to be part of the kingdom, I, I want you to understand there are some things, there are some realities about the kingdom that should assure your hearts. The kingdom will not be thwarted. The kingdom will not be hindered. And this morning, as we work our way through the text, we're going to see that that while there may have been some apparent obstacles, nothing was going to get in the way of the kingdom presence. In verses 79, we see that the kingdom will not be hindered by human authority. It will not be hindered, it will not be thwarted by human authority. Herod, who is Herod Antipas, he is the son of Herod the Great, and You will remember Herod the Great because it was Herod the Great at the birth of Jesus when the Magi came and desiring to uh, uh, extinguish this threat to his kingdom power, will will send a delegation to Bethlehem and he will annihilate all the babies that are two years old and, and under. But Jesus would not be part of that company because God had set his hand on Jesus to preserve him, and, and the kingdom would go forward uh, in spite of human power, in spite of human authority. And now Herod, this is Herod's son, who is Herod Antipas. He is referred to as a tetrarch because the, a tetrarch is one who will rule over a fourth of the kingdom. So once Herod the Great was killed or died... It was divided. His kingdom was divided among three of his sons and another one of his associates. Herod Antipas was made ruler over the region of Galilee and nearby Perea, and it was Antipas who would not only imprison John the Baptist but would ultimately behead him. That story is captured for us in Matthew and Mark, but Luke, in focusing on the priority of this kingdom and its message, will will help us to understand that that the kingdom will not be hindered by human authority. Herod was seeking to eliminate the threats, and he seeks to eliminate and does eliminate John the Baptist. And eventually, Herod will be present at the the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He would ultimately be consulted in that final day. In Luke chapter 23, verse 8, It says, Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, but he had heard many things about him, and he he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. You see, he wanted the miracle man to perform his little circus show for him, but Jesus in his kingdom was not about calling miracles on demand. Jesus was not the miracle man. Jesus came with a message. It was about a message of the kingdom. As as Jesus would, would go on to tell Pilate, Pilate says to him, to Jesus, Are you a king? Jesus answers, You say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. That was the kingdom objective during this phase of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came into the world to bring the kingdom, but it was not primarily a physical kingdom, but a spiritual one. It was to bring the truth. And nothing was going to be able to hinder the kingdom work that Jesus came to do. As we step back and look at this, just evaluate in our own hearts How much stock, how much hope, how much confidence do we place in human kingdoms? How much anxiety do we get every time there is a a new election or there are new policies or there are new people to to, to vote for and to put into office? And and, and how how bent out of shape do we get when, when our man or our woman is not elected to be an official? How much hope, how much confidence do we place in human kingdoms. Jesus came to demonstrate that the confidence is not in physical kingdoms, but in a heavenly king. In heavenly kingdoms. In heavenly objectives. And so, the, the encouragement to us who are part of the, the, the kingdom of God, we, we recognize that our mission goes forward regardless of the physical kingdoms that there are. And nothing can stand in the way of the kingdom of God. As Jesus will say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The the kingdom objectives will happen because the king will see it through. Next, we'll notice that the kingdom will not be hindered by human need. It will not be hindered by human need. The disciples will come back from their missionary journey and we find them and we picked up that story in verse 10. It says, On their return the apostles told him all that they had done and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called uh, Beseda. The exact location of Beseda is not really known. Bethsaida as a, as a word means the house of fish. So it's likely one of those villages that, that was around the Sea of Galilee, and, and it's thought to be on the eastern side, the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. This would be an important village because this is where Peter and Andrew would come from. This was their hometown. This is also likely the hometown of Philip and Nathanael, who would, who would eventually move the kind of the center of their ministry, kind of home base, would become Capernaum. This was also important because however amazing the miracles were that were taking place in Bethsaida, we find a rebuke to this town specifically in the very next chapter, in Luke chapter 10. Notice this with me. Woe to you, Chorazin. This is in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. You see, the works that Jesus performed in Bethsaida, and the miracle we're about to look at here in the next several verses, probably and probably arguably the, the pinnacle of Christ's ministry, where, where the most people were reached at the, at the, at the, for, at the one time, in this feeding of the 5,000 than any other miracle that Jesus performed. The evidence of kingdom presence in power was known more than any other time here in this feeding of the 5,000, which wasn't just 5,000 men, but probably included some women and some children, as we see in our narrative, maybe as many as 20,000 individuals who were present for this miracle. This would be the pinnacle of Christ's ministry at about the two-and-a-half-year mark of Jesus' ministry. But from this point on, Jesus would begin now a journey to the cross because however great things seem to be, however much attention Jesus' ministry seemed to have here, ultimately, this region would reject the truth of Jesus. Just like what would happen in Samaria, just like what would ultimately happen in Jerusalem. What Luke doesn't share with us in our narrative is picked up for us in Mark chapter six, verse thirty and thirty-one. After John the Baptist is killed, uh, several of the disciples who had first been disciples of John the Baptist are grieving. There's a, a measure of sorrow. There's there's pain when good friend when a f- good friend dies. In Mark chapter 6, verses 30 and 31, Jesus says this The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That's really good news a vacation. But they didn't get a vacation. It says, on their return here, coming back to Luke chapter 9, verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowd learned it, they followed him. Okay, Jesus, what are you going to do? You said vacation. (laughs) You gave us your word. We're going to rest for a little while. What's Jesus going to do? Weary, discouraged, depleted, missionaries who've been doing the mission work for who knows how long. Now they finally returned. They deserve some much-needed rest, right? Well, Jesus does not do what you'd expect. It says, And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had a need of healing. You see, kingdom priorities and kingdom objectives took precedence. And Jesus, in understanding that God could help to overcome, God the Father could help to overcome physical needs, depends upon the providence of God in this moment. Here are the followers coming. And by the way, it's the same thing that Jesus has been calling the crowds to do, follow me, and here they are, the same word, the same Greek word, they're following him. So in obedience to Jesus' command, he's not going to turn them away. And he is going to depend upon the provision and care of the Father to meet whatever physical needs there might be in this moment. (laughs) He's using this as a classroom, too, to help the disciples. Will the disciples come to the place of recognizing that kingdom priorities will be accompanied by kingdom power in helping to provide for their needs? They should have known this, right? Because Jesus, in the first several verses, is sending them out without a staff, without a bag, without bread, without money, and God provides for their needs. And now, here the situation is amplified, not just providing for their individual specific needs, but now needing to provide for the needs of 5,000, 20,000 individuals and in this moment, Jesus or God was not enough. He could help them in the little things, but he couldn't help them when, when, when things got really hard. Jesus now turns this situation onto the disciples in the next several verses. It says, The day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and, and to get provision. For we... We are here in a desolate place. But Jesus says to them, what does he say? You give them something to eat. (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) Really? How is that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen by human power. It's not going to happen because you have the resources. It's going to happen because you're depending upon kingdom power and kingdom provision. Jesus is trying to press them into faith. He knows this is is what it's going to take for them to be about kingdom purposes. It says in verse 14, there were about 5,000 men in this place. So Jesus has the disciples. He gives them this object lesson. He he incorporates them into this strategy. He has the, the crowds sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And notice verse 16, which is critical. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and and said a blessing over them. Why? Because Jesus, as was a testimony in his life, always pointed to the source of kingdom provision. He pointed to God. God the Father was going to be able to meet the needs that seemed so impossible. He broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the crowd. And notice how the provision of God comes to play in two ways. First, and they all ate and were satisfied. This is the word to fill up. This is kind of like the, the Thanksgiving meal satisfied, right? This is like the, oh, I ate too much satisfied. You ever feel that in Thanksgiving? Like, what was I thinking? That was really dumb. I shouldn't have had that fourth piece of pie. That, that, was, that was just... Not a good idea. They were satisfied. God filled their tummies. To such a point, there was no more room to eat. And so then, not only does God meet their physical need here, but it says they were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now, that's provision. And at this point, the disciples had already eaten. But Jesus wanted them to understand. There's one of these spare baskets for every one of you. What you thought was impossible was impossible with men, but it is possible with God. And the kingdom will not be thwarted by human need. Trust in a God who is over all. There's, in between verses 17 and verse 18 in Luke chapter 9, there's a section that is picked up and carried along in Matthew and Mark. But, but Luke wants to continue to drive to this point of the kingdom itself. And now he's going to move in verses 18 to 45, this final section. He wants the disciples to understand that the kingdom will not be hindered by human suffering. It's not going to be hindered by human suffering. As a matter of fact, human suffering is going to be an instrument to advance kingdom purposes. Let me say that again. Human suffering is going to be an instrument to advance kingdom purposes. That's how it works. Because there's there's no other way to to help the world understand what what the priorities actually are. There, there, there's no other way to, to help the world understand that, that, that God is sufficient to help when, when there's no other explanation for how these kingdom people are surviving. There's no other way to explain how these kingdom subjects are, are enjoying the satisfaction of God when, when all the earthly comforts are stripped away from them. Then you'll know for certain that these are kingdom people because they're committed to kingdom purposes even when all earthly comforts are taken away. The kingdom will not be hindered by human suffering and actually it will be advanced by it. Notice in verse 18... Jesus now pulls the disciples aside. It says, now now it happened as he was praying alone. And I just want to pause there for a moment. This is a a feature of Jesus' ministry where you see the the faithfulness of Christ and the dependence of Jesus in prayer with the Father is happening constantly throughout his ministry. He's modeling this for his disciples. He wants them to know that that this is the only way that the kingdom life is going to happen. It says, it happened that he, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, the one of the prophets of old that has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. The Christ of God. You see, the kingdom will not be hindered by human suffering, because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Why is that important? (laughs) This was the only truth that was going to carry the disciples to the finish line. Knowing the identity of who Jesus was, was the only thing that was going to get them through. This is the most important question of the universe. It is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Is Jesus the Christ or is he not? That truth is the truth that will take you to heaven. When you understand who Jesus really is. Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the promised one. Jesus as the Messiah. The one who fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament to Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to Noah, and to David, and the list goes on. He is the one who came to fulfill those promises as the Messiah, the Christ of God, the one who came to reign, the one who came to fulfill all the expectations that had been placed on him through these promises, the prophets of old. Jesus is asking This question, because this is the question that's on the lips of everyone who hears Jesus. Herod asks this question. We find that at Simon's house in Luke chapter 7, this is where the immoral woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet. They are asking this question. They say, who is this one who even forgives sins? John the Baptist will ask this question in John chapter 7 or Luke chapter 7:18 Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? The crowd at Nain will ask this question when Jesus raises the widow's son. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people they will say. At the healing of the paralytic, the crowds will ask this question. The scribes and the Pharisees in their heart will say in Luke chapter 5, Who is this one who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but Christ alone? In Luke chapter 4, verse 36, the crowd will ask this question, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. Jesus was not just another prophet. Jesus was not just a miracle worker. Jesus was the Christ. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ of God. The answer, which was correct, was not an answer that Peter received on his own. And that's important to understand as well. As Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 will say, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven these are not the truths that we arrive at on our own these are this is the truth the truth about the identity of Jesus as the Christ is a truth that can only come from God himself so as you submit your life Christ, as you surrender yourself and say, God, reveal yourself to me, it will be God who reveals the identity of Christ as the person of Jesus who is the chosen one, the Messiah. The same is true today. This is not only the most important question that you can ask. The truth is that it only comes, this, the answer only comes through the mercy and illumination of God to your heart. Jesus is the Christ. We see in verses 21 to 27 that the the ministry of the kingdom will not be hindered because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Moving to verse 21, he says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus set the example of following after the will of the Father. And he followed that will to the cross. He followed that will to expending of himself entirely. Says the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders rejected this truth. They rejected Jesus. They ultimately put him on the cross. Jesus was the way, but they didn't recognize the kingdom message and power had come to them. These guardians of the law should have known better. These religious leaders should have been the first to worship, the first to bow, the first to follow. But Jesus was not only a threat to their authority. Jesus was a threat to their understanding. He challenged their traditions. He challenged their way of thinking he called them to look to God rather than, rather than to look to themselves. But make no mistake, Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. Jesus was not uh, um, one who was surrendered to the will of human authority. Peter will say on the day of Pentecost, there in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was delivered up according to the predestined foreknowledge of God the Father, the the plan that had already been put in place. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. And Jesus was the way. And Jesus set the way, the course, for those who would follow after him. Notice in verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's our word again. This word for follow, this word For coming after this paradox, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The one who will follow is the one who recognizes that Jesus is the way. Now I understand that's going to look differently for everyone in this room. What does following after Jesus look like? And for some of you, it will mean a great deal of sacrifice, personal sacrifice, in, as it relates to, to physical things, as it relates to, to, to making big steps and deciding to go into hard places. For some of you, following after Jesus is simply doing what God intends for you to do today as a student as a teacher, as a professional, as a mother, as a father, being faithful in the place that God has you. Remember last week what we said, that, that you'll never be sent unless you're first willing to follow? Are you willing to, to remain and abide with Christ? Does your life demonstrate the, the faithfulness of trusting God day by day? Well, that's, what God, that's what Jesus is after. We'll never get to the, with every breath, I, I long to follow Jesus until in this moment, moment by moment, we make a decision, I'm going to follow you in this moment to obey even when it's hurt. That's what following after Jesus looks like. To the point of giving it all for the sake of showing obedience to Christ. Verses 26 and 27, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I can tell you truly, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What in the world is Jesus referring to? And why? Why would he point to that reality? It's because of what we find next. The disciples would need to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That will be the reality that they will see on this Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is changed in front of them. They will come to terms and be reminded again of the fact that God the Father says of his Son, This is my Son, my chosen one. Jesus is the Son. Verses 28 and following. Now about eight days after these sayings, and that's important because that's our connection, that's our link to the promise of the kingdom and the reality of this kingdom presence that James and John and Peter will see. How are they going to see that? They're going to see glory. Glory of Christ, glory of Moses, glory of Elijah. That's what Jesus promised, that he was going to come in glory. They're going to see a a foretaste of that glory on Mount Transfiguration. About eight days after these sayings, he took them with him, Peter and John and James. They went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. What in the world is taking place here? Why? Why would God decide to bring his son to this experience and to have some sort of mountaintop... Um, changing glory kind of altering experience. Why? What's the point of that? Well, Luke doesn't say. But I think we often diminish and we forget about the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And Jesus being fully man needed the comfort and encouragement of the mission that was set before him. Remember how an angel ministered to Jesus after his temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. The hardship of that experience, and and, and, and God sent angels there to minister to Jesus in his humanity to help encourage and help him revitalize and strengthen him in that moment. Luke will tell us that an angel will minister to him in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. Remember the anguish of that moment in, in, in thinking about what was going to happen on the cross? And, and God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus in this, in this moment. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to carry you. I'll be there for you. God's strength, it is a reminder of His strength. And Jesus, as the Son of God, He was going to be carried by the power of God. And I believe that it was Moses and Elijah in this glimmer of glory which we, by the way, we see so often in the Old Testament. We see this experience of Isaiah with the, the, the holy glory uh, standing before, before the throne, and, and, and that was kind of a, a, a prerequisite before he could enter into a very, very hard ministry. He needed to see the glory of God first. Ezekiel will have the same experience where he'll be ushered into the presence of the throne. He'll see all of the amazing majesty of the throne room and and it'll press him into very, very hard ministry. The Apostle Paul is uh, in his own testimony in 2 Corinthians. He talks about being lifted up to the third heaven. He sees the glory. It was a a prerequisite that that would help carry him through very difficult ministry. I think Jesus needed to... Be reminded of the joy that was set before him. Endure the cross, despising shame. And in this moment, God brings about this, this encouragement that we find here in verse 35. A voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Jesus says, the son of God. God the father was going to see it through. He was going to carry it out. He was going to comfort his son along the way. We have the same hope, by the way, as those who are sons and daughters of God. That God will see it through. God is sovereign. He will strengthen us and encourage us. We found in 2 Peter that he's going to establish and strengthen and settle and perfect us. That, That is his work. That's the work of a God of comfort and grace. He does for us as his sons and daughters. And finally, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. We see that in verses 37 to 43. It says, On the next day, when he had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Behold, there was a man from the crowd who cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a great spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him, and will hardly leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answers, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Who was Jesus talking to? Was he talking to the Father? Was he talking to the crowd? Yes, but specifically, we find that he is speaking to his disciples. His disciples that should have known better. His disciples who had already been commissioned to have authority over demons and authority over diseases. And, and in this moment, having seen Christ and been, been, been commissioned by him, delegated authority, given to them, they should have understood where the source of power came from so they could have done the work that was set before them. Jesus will confront them as we find in Mark chapter 9.29. Jesus will tell his disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Meaning, this was not a faith issue with the Father. This was a faith issue for the disciples. It'll be, very more, it'll be a lot more specific in Matthew chapter 17, verse 19, when he says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out, he says to them, because of your little faith? Jesus calls the the boy and the father to him. In verse 43, we see, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The king showed up in glory. This word, like I said last week, only shows up three times in the New Testament. Here, Luke wants to help us understand the the uniqueness of this event in calling attention to kingdom authority. Jesus is the king. So there's no suffering that's going to get in the way of his objectives. Are we willing to follow the king? Are we willing to recognize his sovereignty in our life? Are, Are we willing to... Align ourselves to King Jesus. And we've wrapped it up with just this final question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. I trust that's true. But it begins with steps of faith. It begins with pressing in. And and we can look at the disciples here, and we can say, wow, those guys really blew it. Look at that. They're the the faithless and twisted generation. And by the way, that word faithless is apistos, no faith, without faith. That was the indictment that Jesus levied on them. But as we evaluate ourselves to their, their discipleship, they were with Jesus, And I think that's where the the step of faith begins for us. It begins with, do you know Jesus? Do you you, you acknowledge who Jesus is? Is is Jesus really the Christ for you? Is Jesus the, the only way for you? Is he the only way to have your sins dealt with? Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. He... He covered over sins. He paid the penalty for sin. He invites us into relationship as we come to terms with the fact that he is the only way for us to be forgiven. And we bow the knee to him as king. We make him king of our life. And we acknowledge that he's the son of God and that as those who are united with God as being children and sons and daughters of God, we're in a family and and now we have kingdom objectives, kingdom priorities. But for many of us, it, it doesn't get past step one. And that is, do you have an abiding relationship with Christ? Are you with Christ or do you find yourself coming to Christ? And when we recognize the significance of being with Christ, then we'll want to be in communion with Christ. That happens through prayer. Regular expressions of devotion through listening to Jesus from His Word and speaking to Jesus also from His Word through the power of the Spirit to the throne of God. Prayer. That was the, the, the posture of Jesus' life and ministry from start to finish. Is that the expression of our lives today? And then are we committed to kingdom priorities so that we're involved with the kingdom community? (laughs) Like we're we're here. We recognize that this isn't just a place we come, but these are our people. This isn't just God's people, these are our people. And so their problems are our problems, their sorrows are our sorrows, their burdens are our burdens. Their joys are our joys. And I, and I trust that as some of our fellowship have been experiencing in the last couple of weeks, some real heartache, I trust that, that the burdens that they're facing and experiencing, that, that you're weeping with those who weep. You're rejoicing with those who rejoice and that you are invested in kingdom purposes. Not only here in terms of ministry, you're committed to exercising and stewarding the gifts that God has given to you, as we saw in 2 Peter, that we're good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's what faith does. It it presses in. It gets involved. It puts the, the ministry that God has given to you to work. And finally, you recognize the kingdom message in the gospel. Do your neighbors know Jesus? Do you come and go? Do you pull into your garage? The door goes up, the door goes down, and you you never step outside to to talk to your neighbors about Jesus. Are your lips marked with a kingdom message? With every breath, we long to follow Jesus. That's... That's the objective. That's the goal. But may God help us because we're so far from where we should be. Oh God, we need your help to represent you faithfully. Help us, Lord, to understand not only what the mission is and not only understand what the the urgency of that mission is, but be so convinced of the King who establishes that mission for us that, that we like your followers, are willing to expend it all, to give it all for the sake of love to Jesus, who gave it all for the sake of bringing us to God. We praise you. Thank you for your patience with us. Help us to be about kingdom purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.